0: School is in. But are you really ready to learn? Open your eyes to a new day in education with the Awakening Educator, a program specifically designed to explore a new mindful way of educating our youth. Learn about social-emotional learning, new modalities of teaching, and the most relevant topics in education with your hosts, Susan Andrian and Megan Sweet. Susan and Megan will take you inside the issues by looking at them from different points of view. From policies and research, to teaching models that are actually used in schools. There's never a dull moment in this classroom. Have any questions you'd like to ask? Maybe you have knowledge you'd like to share and share your thoughts live on air. Grab a pen and paper and get ready to open your textbooks and minds to a new way of learning on The Awakening Educator.
1: Hi everyone, this is Megan Sweet. Welcome to The Awakening Educator. I'm so pleased today to have Brantley Turner with us who is gonna be talking with us about her experiences teaching and leading in China. So she's an American who's been living in China for um, the better part of 20 plus years um, and is a founder of a school there. So we're gonna talk with her about her experiences, what she sees as different and similar in her experience of, of teaching in, and leading in China. And um, let's get going. So Brantley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Really happy to be here.
2: Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, who you are? Sure. Sure, I would be happy to. So, I'm from the US, which you can hear in my voice, I'm sure. I grew up in New York and um, went to school sort of over around the East Coast. And when I was 17 and about to go to college, my parents moved to Hong Kong. And so, although I didn't go with them, that kind of opened up the opportunity for me to start coming to Asia. So, really have spent my entire adult life, save a few years here and there in mainland China. And as you said before, have had the the great privilege more recent decades of of working in education and starting a school here. But I guess the way to understand my background and experience is a very Western American rooted upbringing, not tons of travel abroad. And then all of a sudden, this opportunity to start engaging in in the East and in China. And so really um, two halves of my life. Yeah, that's really cool. So um, what
1: So you studied in the United States, and then once you finished college, you went out to China and joined your folks out there. Is that about right?
2: So, so what happened was because of their move, just that summer between high school and college, I had the opportunity to come to Hong Kong and then went uh, with my mom for her job on a trip to Beijing. And it really was, I know that people point to kind of seminal moments in their lives that changed the direction of their career, their studies. And for me, it was just, I was blown away by that experience in Beijing. And I thought, you know what, I could take Chinese when I get to college. Why not try something new, you know, about to start freshman year. And so I took Chinese one freshman year of college, five days a week. And really, you know, for me, the, it became a a relationship of language and culture and experience that just always stayed exciting. And and certainly, right, that was the early 90s. So China was also hitting the trajectory that now for the past 30 years we've been watching, right? So it was just this amazing moment in time to get involved in in trying to understand what, what was going on here. So yes. And then since 1994, there hasn't been a year that I haven't either been here in some capacity traveling or living.
1: That's amazing. That's it. What a, what it is. Talk about like a, a fork in the road in your life going in one direction or the other. So what drew you
2: to education in particular then? So I always had an interest in education. You know, I was, I taught Mandarin. I tutored Mandarin in college in Rhode Island. I, I TA'd in college. I was a summer camp counselor, you know, a lot of different experiences that definitely led to wanting to be involved in education. But then when I arrived in China, I was finishing a program here in 1999. And the real options were teach English, which I did, which I'm not very good at. <laughs> and um, the other was work in international education. But <clears throat> here there's a classification, which is called the schools for the children of foreign nationals. That's a special Sort of licensed for schools. And I wasn't, A, at the time, a qualified US teacher. B, really wasn't my experience and engagement with China was around using Mandarin and trying to have more local experiences. So I was, A, not qualified, but B, also not terribly interested in working at a school for the children of foreign nationals. So again, you know, at the time I, I pivoted and I didn't jump into education right away for a career path. And had a lot of, I've had a lot of different interesting jobs in China, uh, kind of just pursuing, again, that local experience. And then in 2005, started to have more unique and different opportunities to engage with education. So actually in 2005, in first getting involved in education, I did more experiential education. So I was working with a lot of teachers that were bringing student groups to China, exposing students I started teaching high school programs I taught a university program at a a school here so you know really I I think that while I'm not in any way the expert in education that so many people you would have had on the show are or other people that we meet in in the education landscape I came about it from sort of a genuine personal interest perspective and really China was kind of a stepping stone to to get and create those opportunities for me. Oh, that's really cool. I mean, I think
1: it, that's an interesting place, maybe. And I, I know we talked a lot in, in our pre-interview about your school, and I'd love to hear about that. But I, I do think, um, you know, it's Asia and um, Asian countries and United States, the cultural differences are pretty profound. Um, I have spent a lot of time in Japan, not in China. And Well, there's, you know, obviously there's lots of things that feel similar, there's just ways of being and norms that are just so different in Japan than the United States, that it can feel a little disorienting sometimes, I actually love it better um, than the United States in a lot of ways. Um, And I'm just wondering for you, I mean, we'll kind of get into it, but what were some of those big cultural shifts for you? Or even we can talk about currently, you know, we were talking about the pandemic, uh, approaches to things like a pandemic have been pretty different in China versus the United States.
2: Absolutely. So I think about this all the time. I mean, from the spectrum of how do we as individuals, you know, interact with different, with cultures different to our own and And the other part is because I am involved in educating Chinese nationals that are going to go abroad to many different countries for college, right? Talking about cultural bias and and what that means and what that feels like. Uh, So there's the cultural, the culture shock or the kind of cultural uh, disconnect feeling, Mm -hmm. but then there's really, you know, how then are you interacting with others and cultural bias? And so, you know, Mm -hmm. A, I have lots of opinions on this, but just to share briefly, I feel like it's so cliche, but it's true. The reality in Asia in general, not just in China, is that the culture is on large, more collective. Mm -hmm. So uh, what that plays out in the school environment is collective fun, you know, people sort of intertwining of the personal and the professional is very blurry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm extremely comfortable with that. And, and the way that I've sort of sort of categorized that in my own mind for myself is how do you feel if you're a school leader with vulnerability, with accessing and talking to people about things that maybe are not always considered appropriate in, in a Western context or in a professional setting. And that's just had to be the norm for me here in school leadership, but also just in my life. I mean, I mean, the level of Privacy that you have is way reduced. I mean, we could talk about pandemic management, right? I mean, absolutely everything is on the table for for sharing and being required to share. And on the other side, I find myself in a Western context very, very kind of disconnected from, oh, wow, you mean we're not going to sit around for two hours and just randomly talk about this topic and see if it might wind our way to some sort of work outcome? You know, the, 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 one, the one way to sort of encapsulate this is Asia is, again, and it's so hard when we speak in generalization. So we'll just add the caveat that obviously there's exceptions, there's generational differences, et cetera. But if we talk in general, there is a trust-based expectation. You, you build relationships and those relationships create trust. And then you are able to get things done. And that if you haven't built a relationship and built trust, you can't, you'll be told, yes, sure. Of course, I'll be happy to do that for you, but it won't happen. On the other side, um, you, you know, once you, you sort of build that trust, relationships are, are very, very, very powerful. So language in organizations and schools of family, you know, we are family. What I found in the Western context with a lot of International teachers is saying, "Hey, listen. You know what? You don't choose your family. We we maybe don't want to use that language of family. Community is language that we're comfortable using. But mm-hmm. in my in my case here, it it isn't. That isn't. There isn't a distinction made there, right? Yeah. There's a very it's it's paternalistic. It is quite hierarchical still. Um, in in versus the West, which I think has has moved away from from some of that sort of hierarchical paternalistic leadership."
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Maybe can you give an example, um, a school-based example of, of those differences? So let me think about one that, because I think that idea of building trust to to be able to get work done, um, but not having it be told to you directly, is, is feels familiar, but also I get that is different um, because I think power and hierarchy pays, plays a big role in the United States um, getting things done. Oh, yeah, I think, yeah. I think it, I think trust works. If you like, I use trust a lot when I'm trying to get work done by people who um, maybe are ranked below me or who I'm serving. So, for example, if I am trying to create a change in a school, Um, building trust with the school community is the most important thing for me to be able to get that work done. Because if I don't have that trust, they're not, they're going to create hard, it's going to make it hard for me, right? Because they're going to, because they're not going to be easy. I mean, and they should, they should make it hard for me. Um, But they're going to be uneasy. And they're going to ask a lot of questions about why I'm making a choice that I'm making. However, if I'm in, um, if I'm doing that same work in like the district office, I can much more rely on my role my title and my positional authority in some ways to get some, some of that same work done. So I have to kind of switch and change hats all the time um, when I'm doing a lot of the work that I do, because depending on where I am, um, yeah, it's different in each place. So I'm just wondering for you. um, Yeah.
2: No, I'd be happy to share. I think that, you know, the reality is it, is it what plays out in public and what plays out in private? And so let's use a school example. It's an end of term, all hands, town hall, faculty meeting. Mm -hmm. You're going to be hearing one voice from a stage in general. Certainly, you know, in a school like ours, we try to introduce workshop and and, and facilitate a discussion. I'm, I'm not, you know, but you will typically in a school setting, and let's not just use mine, let's use public school settings, state schools here in China to private schools here in China, you're going to see leadership and authority discussing and presenting points related to the school community be they summary be they strategy etc that's not going to be a space for dialogue okay that is going to be transmission of information okay. however that information will have been workshopped behind the scenes i see so what you don't typically do then in a in a traditional construct is solicit live interaction or dialogue or feedback. And so it's very much private public domain separation. So, Dang. you know, moving into a town hall situation in our context is very out of the norm. And it's something that we've worked on to try to introduce different forms of interaction, give how to give space to voices, but it's, it's a process. Um, and I think one of the reasons that you see actually a lot of social media use in our context, not just not necessarily our school context, but but certainly societally, that's sometimes a disconnect for people. Wait, what do you mean, China? Like people are so you know so active in 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 the social media space publicly because you're looking for voice, right? It doesn't mean people don't look for opportunities to share voice, but but that that piece of pushing out the, the hierarchy very visibly and present. So you know a few different things. If you have the title, you've got the mandate. I see. Um, now typically people would think about Asia as being very male driven. That has not frankly been my experience. I have been afforded amazing opportunities, uh, as a, as a woman here that I, I, I appreciate greatly. And I think speak to a lot of, uh, acceptance, particularly in education of female leadership. And the third is age. So the reality is that I was 36 when we started Qibao Dwight. You know, there was a little bit of an age factor question, but just to pair that with China, it was that opportunity, right? So for me, no one would have made me ahead of school anywhere. I mean, no one would have. I did not have the, the resume or the credentials, but I was able to kind of thread the needle and get this public private partnership joint venture open, which was also then a different skill set that was needed for our context. So I think that while, yes, typically people might have this idea of a checklist of what you've got to be to be successful in Asia or China that hasn't exactly matched up with what my personal experience has been. So I think that just as a summary to the idea of how do you navigate in in China, um, you've got to be comfortable with paradox. You have to be able to comfortably hold two conflicting ideas not that you always have to rationalize them, but you've got to be able to sit with them and you've got to like pull on levers to know when you've put, you know, which foot forward. And so I think I'm so inexperienced in the West and in, in the U.S., in, especially in a business setting that I don't know. I don't have an equivalent. I know what it takes here but I don't know which of those skills will map back to, to the U S. And so I really appreciate those ideas of trust. I mean, they must be universal, right? It's just, well,
1: they're, yeah, there's certainly, I mean, I think trust is universal. I actually um, wrote a book around um, how do you create change and trust is one of the most important things for anything. And we actually determine whether or not we trust people within, within milliseconds of meeting them. So, um, you know, I, and, and this is an american-based research so i don't know what it would be in a different culture how that trust is is determined and bestowed but um yeah we look at people assess them and instantly decide whether or not we trust them we we can give some room possibly to um be right or wrong with that assessment but generally we go with that first thought and um it's a big one and so our interactions with others are so important. The way we carry ourselves hold, and walk into rooms and, and how we treat others ends up being pretty profound. Um, and if we break trust in particular, very hard to get it back again. <laughs> it's possible, but it's hard to get it back again, especially um, yeah, in situations where there's a major change or something that need, where we need to where we're trying to create a, a change in something. So it's pretty it's pretty interesting to see how that works. It's really fascinating to me that you're giving these opportunities in China, given that um, you aren't a national um, from China and that they have given you so much space to be successful. So maybe tell us a little bit about your idea for starting the school in the first place, because I know you're also the founder of this school. So I'm wondering how that came about.
2: So, uh, in brief, it was just a sort of chance opportunity, the Asia Society education team in New York uh, at, at the organization Asia Society that does, you know, connecting with the peoples and cultures of Asia in, a, in, a, in an open dialogue sort of setting, essentially has a great education team. They've done a lot of work with their international schools network. And they were talking to Shanghai Education Commission, who was looking to start a, what's called in China, a cooperatively run high school. It's a, it's a, it's a term, and there's one in Shanghai, which is NYU, New York University has a partnership with East China Normal University. That is a cooperatively run university and no high school in all of China had gotten open under that policy. So there's Duke Kunshan, Ningbo, Nottingham University. There are there are universities that you know that we're familiar with in the U.S. and also British universities and other countries that are operating here. But a high school hadn't been opened. Shanghai awesome. Edu- Com- Education Commission wanted to get one open, so these conversations started ten years ago in 2012, and Asia Society was trying to help look for a U.S. partner. So at Dwight School, New York, we were already working on a pilot program in Beijing at a public school called Capital Normal. Uh, you know, long, long name in Chinese, but capital normal high school. And we had some really good experience there. And so when Asia society was asking me, do you you know, know about a school that could be interested in a partnership? I got the introduction to Shibao high school. And the way to understand Xibao is it's a, you know, it's a, it's a key school, which means you test into high school, extremely rigorous, extremely selective, but public high school and serving a, a vast, a broad socioeconomic range in Minhang District in Shanghai, and one of the top public high schools in Shanghai, led by a very charismatic and influential long-term public school educator in Shanghai and across China. And so essentially, they had been tapped to be the Chinese partner, that public school, and they were looking for a US partner. So yes. I said, well, hey, I know the Asia Society guys from working on principal and student programs coming into China. And I said, but what you guys don't know is that we've been doing this program up in Beijing, and I think there's a lot of good learning from that. So let's see, you know, let's, let's talk and, and see what happens. Not thinking for a moment that I would be anything but the person who kind of pulled the two schools together. And then the process of discussion and negotiation and, and trying to create the curriculum and decide what we're going to do, I just got so invested You know, eventually when we needed a foreign vice principal, that's my technical title, it's called American principal, but I am by law, what's called a foreign vice principal. I raised my hand and I said, look, I know that I might not be people's first choice, but I would really love the opportunity to try to take this on. And so, you know, eight years ago we opened doors and it's been a wild ride.
1: (laughs) That's amazing.
2: So you didn't have you were
1: invested in it because, you know, you were somebody who had experience with this this partnership, but weren't necessarily an educator and um, stepped forward and wanted to be the principal and they gave you that opportunity. That's amazing. That's really great. Wow. Well, I know it's been really a successful school. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about your school? And for those of us in California and the United States, this idea of even the kind of school you have is a bit of a, is a bit of a reach and, and, and different for us, right? So we have, we all know we have public schools or private schools or maybe charter schools. And those are the the brands and almost all of them are um, exclusive to maybe some private schools or boarding schools. You know, you show up at the door and you get in, unless it's a private school, you, can, you have to test into it, but we're much more used to, especially public schools. There's no, there's no great, you're not allowed to have that kind of testing criteria. So I'm just wondering what are, what is that like to have to, what's your school about? And then how do kids get in? Um, And I already heard you said that you you serve students that are Chinese citizens, so not um, foreign nationals, which is an important distinction.
2: Sure. So we are allowed to take foreign nationals at our school because of its special designation, but yes, 600, almost all students are Chinese nationals. So Essentially, this, so Shanghai Qibao Dwight High School, Chibao Chinese partner, Dwight US partner. One of the major motivations for Chibao and Dwight to partner was to offer international baccalaureate curriculum. So Dwight School in New York was the first full continuum K through 12 IB school in the US. Oh, wow. And has implemented the IB at the diploma level at the high school, right? So grade 11 and 12 for more than 50 years. Oh, wow. So a very compelling motivator for the Chinese partner was that knowledge of the IB. I would say that was really the starting point to why the two schools kind of could, could come together. Dwight also has schools outside of the United States. So there's Dwight Seoul, Dwight London, Dwight Dubai and Chibao Dwight. And one of the things that Dwight has done well is to function at the local level. So meaning our motivation at Dwight was never to start one of the schools for the children of foreign nationals, not because those aren't important and many wonderful schools, but that really wasn't where our interests lie. So when yeah. the opportunity came, right, the Beijing pilot program was also Chinese national students. So that's a very interesting situation for us where we do have some national requirements. Our students must sit four academic proficiency exams, Shanghai, Shriya, Shriping, Koshin. They sit four exams in history, politics, geography, and Chinese language. In addition, they do, and the majority of the students are full diploma students. So they are incredibly rigorous academic situation where in English which is for most of our students their non-native language they have to access a very rigorous curriculum in the IB and in Chinese they have to take if they are Chinese national these four national subjects and then test in those subjects 100% of our students go abroad for university with Hong Kong as you know also being a destination so it would be considered outside of mainland China but not entirely outside of China And the reality is, the point of our school is to give Chinese nationals access to international curriculum and education to enable them to go abroad to better access higher education outside of China. The majority of our students, though, do return to China, right? Ultimately, they they do return after pursuing their education abroad. So I think that the idea is there need to be options and opportunities for students because in China right the only pathway to higher education is through the national exam which is called the gaokao which mm. isn't which is incredibly rigorous but doesn't meet the needs of all students academic paths and i would say though that our students don't come to us at chiba doit because they can't take gaokao right or they would be unable somehow to pass those exams but they are trying to pursue something different and it's it's about choice and so the government started the school really recognizing that choices needed right one pipeline is not going to serve the, the needs of all citizens in the country and so it's a way to have students stay in china for high school as opposed to students going abroad earlier and there there's a mix right certain students of course still do go abroad but i think one of the really key aspects of that is language it's mother tongue language so the ib was a good fit because it provides that strong mother tongue Opportunity to learn, and also if you know you want to speak your native language or read and explore literature in your native language at the at the highest level that you possibly can, and so staying in high school education that allows you to do that in your home country has has benefited our students in terms of their own mother tongue language acquisition.
1: So interesting. I mean, it's such a, it's a whole different system, and uh, I know you're you're about ready to make a transition to a new role. So maybe we come back from break. I'd love to hear about your new role. And also your move back to the United States and just wondering what you're thinking about that in the midst of this time. It's, it's an exciting time to be uh, who you are, where you are, um, but lots of different changes coming. So um, we'll be right back in a moment. And then, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about your transition and, and the work you have ahead. Great. Welcome back, everyone. (laughs) Uh, This is the Awakening Educator. I'm Megan Sweet. And we're here with Brentley Turner today, who is an American national who's been living most of her adult life in China and has founded a school there. And we were just talking about the differences between uh, her school and um, what would be more of a traditional school here in the United States. Uh, So welcome back. Uh, were we were going to talk a little bit about um, your pending move. So you have been with the school for almost ten years, I believe, and now you're about ready to to change. You're still going to be with the school, but your role is changing.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So yes, ten year anniversary this August from when we started talking to Chibao, and it's a it's a job that I could be in forever. I mean, it's continued to bring challenge and excitement and and so many unique opportunities, but at the same time, we are you know looking to to continue to make sure that the organization can can walk on its own. You know, I think for all founders, you really grapple with that question of how do I go? Where do I go? What do I do next? And the three of us that founded the school, the Chinese principal, Wang Fang, uh, our chairman, Chairman Cho Zhonghai and myself, they will still be on board, right? We're kind of like a three-legged stool. And I felt many years ago started to think about someday I will walk away from this school and have a new life or new opportunity. And it needs to be in good hands. And so four years ago, I hired someone from the graduate school program that I went to. So just a brief introduction, because this is a great program. I'm a graduate of a Johns Hopkins program here in China out of the Syce School, which is called the Hopkins Nanjing Center. It is a cooperatively run graduate program here in China. And it was founded 35 years ago. And it's really the grandfather of cooperative education between the U.S. and China in China. So I went to that program and then many years later went back to the program and hired the head of career services there, Robbie Shields. He had been at the Hopkins and Engine Center for six years. And then I spoke to him about coming to join us at Chibao Dwight. And he's done many, many things at Chibao Dwight College Counseling Director. He's taught business management in the IBT. Okay. So he's. He's amazing and uniquely qualified. And really, I am passing the school and the office of the American principal to the one person in the world that I wanted to pass it to. So I feel really lucky to be able to do that. I feel like the school is in extraordinarily capable hands, frankly, more capable than mine in many ways. And so having him on board, and I think the only, because you are such an expert in change management, I think that that's the key, right? I would never have moved into a new position without feeling that I was putting the institution in even a better situation for the future than than it's been under my leadership. So, point one, feel really great about the change and the transition. My next step is almost less important in a way, Um, but what we do know is crucial and particularly in the world that we live in now, dialogue can't stop. Dialogue's messy right now. It's messy politically. It's messy in terms of border challenges due to the pandemic. And decoupling is a big topic on everybody's minds between China and the West. And I am a firm believer that education must continue, meaning through world wars, through China's revolution, domestic revolution, et cetera, from the the late 1800s exchange with China at the educational level hasn't ever been broken. And I think that's critical because a lot of the architects of, of China, of the China that, that you all see today, did study abroad. Mm-hmm. They went abroad, they, they gained their, their political ideas from time spent in France, time spent in Japan. You know, I think that it's really, really crucial to understand that we serve no one if we break the ties of young uh, Westerners and young folks from China having interaction and dialogue with each other. So in a, in a long preamble, in short, in my new role as Director of East Asia for Dwight Schools, I aim to try to build ties for young people to continue interacting through music, through arts, uh, through dialogue around exciting and, and controversial topics, and to bring us together. We have six uh, Dwight Schools and one Franklin School as a part of our of our group of schools. And keeping these students connected is is paramount. So that'll be my vantage point from New York is making sure that global engagement stays as strong as possible for the students in China and the students outside of China.
1: That's really, I mean, I think what you're saying is really important and, and I wish we took advantage of that more in the United States. I actually feel like other countries are much more interested and having those connections, um, then sometimes the United States is, um, it's more, it's less been less known of an opportunity that you can have these programs or these programs exist. So I think what you're talking about is really important, especially as the world gets smaller and smaller, right? We, we need to be able to make sure that um, we know what opportunities are available to us around the world, but also learn about each other. There are so many, uh, I think, misperceptions about about China in particular right now, right? Like it is often the bad guy um, in our movies and TV. Um, and I think it's often really misunderstood. Um, so I think uh, making sure that those connections are are there is important. My son wants to move to Japan when he gets older and is trying to look for Japanese language courses right now. Um, so he can prepare for that. And I'm super excited for him. And as I start to look for opportunities for him, they are actually a little bit hard to find, um, those connection points and, and how to learn. And you know, we're, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area where um, you would think it'd be fairly easy. I can find schools where you can take language um, on the side. A couple of our colleges provide, um, Chinese is more popular than Japanese, but that provide Japanese, for example, but not many. Um, And so I think the, and so to me, I just, I wish the United States was a little bit more progressive around opening the borders of our minds as well as our our education systems. Um, I think we've gone backwards in the last few years, so you're probably lucky to be where you were. Uh, During the last administration, anyway, it wasn't a very um, happy or friendly place to be here sometimes. And I think as as a country, we've gone backwards in terms of our willingness or interest in engaging with others. There's a lot of um, looking inward. So I'm I'm glad that people like you are out there and are going to be creating those opportunities for us to have those bridges built um because we need them so badly these days in particular it's just it's just urgent the world's smaller and we have so much to learn from each other and we all need each other we need to cooperate if we're going to save this planet and um have a future that everyone can enjoy
2: No question. And look, I'm not I'm not trying to advocate for, you know, everything that's being done here. And I'm certainly not going to sugarcoat the level of the challenge and the level of the disconnect. But like you said, pandemic. So global medical challenges, global poverty, global pollution, climate change, environmental issues if the two largest economies in the world do not cooperate around these issues, we are in greater dire straits than we already find ourselves in. And so, yes, I'm very activated around this because I, I know that I'm fighting a tide of, of, of let's not cooperate, let's not collaborate. And again, got to take it to the student level, right? You know, this is this is crucial for the futures of young people and on the bright side, right? Virtual, you know, setting has has opened this up for us. So. Certainly before, it required a lot of money, a lot of resources, a lot of privilege to get on airplanes and, and fly around, would take kids around. And, and certainly travel is important. And I hope that that comes back um, more robustly. But we can't stop just because that travel opportunity went away. Right now, it's extremely difficult to travel from China. And so we have to make sure that we're using technology to support communication in in, in any way that we can. And and that's another piece. I feel like going to this virtual setting has enabled me to maybe pursue this new position with a little bit more, you know, success, I guess, the way way to say it.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right. To me, it's exciting to see how much technology has allowed us to have um, more connections than we've had in the past. And um, it looks like it's sticking around. People are, you know, while offices are opening back up again, some folks are being required to work in the office. I've already even just experienced on the education side here, where in the past, if you want to work for a school district or um, the State Department of Education, you kind of had to live in the town of the, th- of the place and now we're actually able to lead um, organizations from across the country with people working remotely. Um, so I think it's, it's really exciting to see how much we're starting to shift and change in that direction and how our worlds are going to be opening back up again um, in new and different ways based on that. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that for sure. Um, yeah. So I know that your kids are and your whole family is moving back to the United States. Um, and you've been in a lockdown for how long now? Since January, you know, I've
2: started. I've started referring to it as 70 whatever days because I have no idea what day we're on. We <laughs> went to, but yes, I mean, we have been in in a very, very strict lockdown here in Shanghai for many months. Do you mind describing just a little bit of what that looks like? Because I think for us, we we
1: hear the the, the stories we hear. So the one story I heard was, um, that people were literally locked into their buildings. They weren't allowed to leave. Um, and, uh, you know, that there were, you know, it was almost like a human rights issue. That's how it gets portrayed in the news in the United States. So I'm wondering what your experiences on your side, what does the lockdown look like? What is it? How does, how do you get food and your needs met?
2: So it's a very strict lockdown, which means yes, freedom of movement is restricted. You do not get to choose your movement, your path. So Shanghai, the city now is divided into different types of areas based on the level of COVID and whether there's cases in your neighborhood, in your subdistrict. I mean, it is extremely complicated to understand all of the calculation and, and really, you know, what you see. So in 2020, when China locked down and Wuhan locked down hard, that was about an unknown virus and a lot of you know, fear. Uh, right. So I actually think, and, and a lot of people have spoken about this both in the US and China, I actually think that China got it right with their initial approach to trying to lock down uh, in the sense of running it's that lockdown. Right. And there was a lot of buy-in both by international folks living here and locals living here for that. And we really went to zero COVID, right? China China went to zero COVID. Uh, that was the reality of living here for quite some time. The current 2022 lockdown is different because a lot of the rest of the world through vaccination and all of that has become more open now mm-hmm. after two years of, of a lot of challenging lockdowns as well outside. And so this lockdown, I think, took a lot of people a little bit by surprise in terms of going back into that very uh, closed situation. And, and certainly, you know the, the language here is around all pe- all people, that deaths are not acceptable, and that applies to all age levels. So the, the goal is zero COVID, and there hasn't been a pivot away from zero COVID to live with COVID. And what I think you're seeing is a negotiation or a navigation of how that's actually going to be dealt with. Mm. So certainly, right this coming week, June one, we are uh, talking about administration coming back to school. We do have, you know, a testing uh, testing site on campus now. People will take tests each day. But it really, but what we're watching, there's an expression in Chinese called which means to cross the river by feeling the stones underfoot. Mm. And I think that's where we are. So yes, there's a lot of imagery circulating around the level of the challenge and how lots of individual citizens have felt about it. And I guess that what I would say, because I'm still in it, and there's a lot that remains to be seen, there's probably more buy-in and acceptance of, this form of management then is understood externally. Yeah, I think that right. I think so important point. So that meaning yes, there's a lot that's circulating but on a in a typical conversation that I would have there's a high level of understanding and acceptance of the current situation. That doesn't mean by all, but I would say more than than people might understand externally because there's a very strong belief and support for the idea of zero COVID. Well,
1: and I think it goes back to this idea of a collective culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and Jap- Japan has a collective culture too, right? Where the, the, the we is more important than the I. Um, and so there's a lot of things that you do, um, even just like recycling this is my best example right now in Japan is like extreme because there's this idea that we all take care of each other and we take care of the planet. And so there's a there's an agreement to do certain things (laughs) that you would just not see in the United States at all around. I mean, truly, like recycling things is like a whole process. And there's like you literally have to cut, break down your milk cartons a certain way and put them in a certain place. You know, like it's very, very detailed and specific. And everyone does it because that's one of the hallmarks of a collective culture is people understand that sometimes there are inconveniences or things that we need to do to take care of the greater whole. And there's an acceptance of that and it's not such a big, like it's inconvenient and everything else, but it's not this giant uh, brooch on our rights, which in the United States, I feel like is so extreme on the other side. So I'm, I'm personally not a fan of the United States, like independent culture nature, um, especially in something like the pandemic, because I think we've lived with COVID a lot longer. We've had a lot more deaths and impact because there are so many people that just refuse to follow along. And still, like, you know, we're we're hitting another surge right now um, in the United States. And, you know, we've had a lot of vaccinations, which is helpful. And so people are less ill than they got before. And it's not as deadly. But, um, you know, getting people to do do some of the basic things that you would see in other countries is just not possible here, you know, state by state. There are people who never locked down once, schools that were never closed, Uh, people that just moved around and, you know we have many places where there's lots of issues here but it's it was really surprising and frustrating because there's no way in a in a country like the united states where each state gets to make their own rules it's almost impossible to create a a a shared approach to anything Um, um, and have people actually and trust that people are actually going to follow it which is kind of the the other part of that issue so i just think it's really interesting um, that difference thank you for letting me hear about that uh, before we go, I would love to hear a bit about your move back to the United States. And I know you have three young children who've lived almost exclusively in China. I assume they've come to the United States for a visit. But what are some of the big cultural shifts you're anticipating they're going to have um, as you move back and live in the, in, in New York? <laughs>
2: I think it. in some ways, I think they're more resilient than I am. I am, I'm more fearful of culture shock and my own ability to cope and adapt than I am for them. Uh, I have an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old. And yes, they, two of them were born in China. One of them was born in New York, but grew up in China. And, you know, look, I give them great credit for staying open and staying flexible and kids are amazing. and, And my, my kids, I feel proud that they have always maintained an identity that is related to the fact that they are not Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't look Asian. Uh, they have no Asian heritage. And so we've been in many elevators in the U S on vacation, than things where a t- China topic came up and somebody was chatting about it. And, you know, my kids don't look as though they've, Spent any time uh, outside of the U.S., <laughs> mm-hmm. so we have to navigate that. But I feel pretty confident and 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 happy for them that they have an opportunity to have a different experience. I think that's also really important. I think that I'm more concerned about how I'm going to handle the experience of of living in in the U.S. again and again, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to live in the US for my passport, I, I'm a very, uh, you know, a privileged American, and that is something that has afforded me a lot of the opportunities that I've had other places. So I don't take that for granted at all. But I also know that, you know, honestly, it's not that interesting to people to have a long conversation about China, right, <laughs> even spending an hour with you today is special, because like you said, I don't agree with everything around me, certainly by any stretch of the imagination. I am an individual with individual opinions and and thoughts about how uh, different countries have approached the pandemic as one or how they're approaching many different challenges we're facing. But what I've learned from this outside perspective is just that taking an outside perspective, trying to function as an observer, trying to listen deeply, right? And and the kind of mantra that I've carried with myself through starting this school, but throughout my life here has been, it's not about being right, it's about getting it right. And getting it right requires a lot of dialogue and a lot of uncomfortable conversations, a lot of push and pull. And I love being in an environment where that's okay. And one of the things that I think is challenging is, well, yes, I said here, you talk about everything kind of behind and then you present mm-hmm. a united public front. There's real direct dialogue in that behind, that, that behind and, and everything is on the table. There There's very there's very little that's off limits for discussion. Interesting. And that's been really thrilling for, for a long time. And I do think that the way that we're, we're the world has shifted a bit and the reality in china has shifted a bit and that means spending some time outside of china is also is also really exciting and and a good, a good it's a good time to do that but certainly that roller coaster of culture shock and you know i think that there's a chameleon aspect to functioning well in different cultures. Mm. And many of us feel that even in the US as we navigate different cultures, right? And as you speak different languages, you've written a lot about language, you take on different characteristics and your your brain is altered by by speaking in in your non-native language. And I really love doing that. And so I'm hoping to find opportunities to be able to continue to do that in, in the US. And I also think, we won't be there forever. I think New York is a is a stopover, and we certainly look forward to other opportunities with Dwight. As I said, we have other schools around the world, and so we'll we'll look to try to have another international experience. But really, just excited about spending that time in the U.S. for the next year.
1: Yeah, that's. A, I mean, I think you said so many things there that are really important, and I know. And when we had our pre-show discussion, we talked about. Um, how decisions and discussions get made and how we need to learn to be really humble to understanding that, um, our cultures, our norms, and our values are really different and distinct, um, country to country, individual to individual. And that the key is to, is to be curious and to be open and to, and to listen. Um, you know, I shared with you that, uh, I had an experience um, working with a a school um, in Chinatown in Oakland, so even though in the Bay Area, um, that wanted to do something and wanted to have a change something about their school program, and I worked with them for a couple of years, and ultimately the change didn't end up happening, but what I came to out of the experience was, while the change didn't end up happening, and I didn't agree with what they wanted, and I happened to be the person with power who got to make that decision, I, although it wasn't about like, I win, you, you don't win kind of thing. It was more around, they couldn't give me the evidence that I was looking for. <laughs> um, but it, it was an interesting experience because I didn't, well, I didn't agree necessarily with what, how they were approaching the, the kind of schooling that they wanted. I also recognize that it wasn't wrong. It just wasn't my preference or what I believe to be true based on my experience of what schooling should look like um, and what experiences kids should have. Um, And the difference between what we as educators think are most important for our students and what parents think are most important for their students comes up all the time it comes up on an individual you know student to teacher level but also on school and district levels country levels so you have this really great um, perspective because you've really lived in two different cultures, like immersively. Uh, well, I, I know you're American. I'm sure in a lot of ways you feel more Chinese than you do American at this point, probably, um, at least in some ways, because so much of your formative years have been in in China and in developing those relationships. Um, so I just think it's it's really exciting that that's where you've been. And, um, and yeah, the idea of continuing to be curious and, um knowing that just because what we think is right doesn't mean that it's what's right for everyone. It's just such an important, such an important point for us to remember um, as the world continues to open up. And as we start to accept other cultures and ideas, it's just different. That's all.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And I think, you know, after we talked last time, I sort of put some notes down about that cultural bias. So, right. There's a, there's a psychological and neurological, maybe when I'm talking about paradox, right? I'm literally talking about in the brain level paradox of cultural bias, right? Our brains group things together, biases form, Mm -hmm. super helpful in lots of contexts, detrimental in others, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's conscious awareness, right? When we talk in the United States context, race, gender, social status, right? Mm -hmm. People are making millisecond decisions about others. This is Right. This subconsciously and automatically activates emotional regions of our brain. Right. We get a feeling and then we do all this work to try to justify and rationalize. Right. Mm -hmm. And we have this tendency we split us into them. Right. And the other, and the other is cold and angry and to be feared. Uh Right. And the us are virtuous and warm and familiar and right. Uh And the reality is that this. Our brains don't want to see things that counter our beliefs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We ignore counter evidence, yeah? And so the point is, absolutely, we in facing cultural bias and in facing ideas and realities that are extremely repellent to us, Mm -hmm. we have to find situations, particularly if we're educators and we're in, we have the, the responsibility of transmitting knowledge to young people and working with teachers collectively to to create the knowledge that we transmit. Basically, we've got to be aware of this. And so, and I think that kind of this neuroscience of cultural bias Mm -hmm. is something that I certainly need to be better educated in, but I feel like I'm walking out of the data gathering part of of that process. Mm -hmm. And now I need to sort of try to start to process it because I, I, I worry a lot about that Rationalizing, right? That that sort of we because behavior leads to outcomes, right? Like if we think a certain way, we behave a certain way, and that has consequences for everybody.
1: Well, yeah. And if you start thinking about change management or or any adaptation, adaptation to change, we as humans really in our brains really don't like change. I mean, I think a lot of the reasons why those biases get formed um, and we get ourselves so attached is that we're looking for the familiar things that are helping us to feel grounded and sure in who we are and what we think we know to be true. And so when we allow, um, uh, so, and that's how biases are helpful, but the problem with biases is that they look to, we look for things that reinforce those biases. And so when we are confronted with things that aren't the norm, that aren't real or true, we have to make a choice because we're already feeling threatened at that point. And I think our cultural values and ideas often come up in that place because what I think is important and true doesn't is not necessarily what you think is important and true. And we can both be right <laughs> and we can both live in our worlds, but they're not necessarily going to align with one another. And so I think the more we can learn to stay curious and open and just be aware that when we're uncomfortable, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean that that you, Brantley, are wrong and I am right or vice versa, it means that we're having a different experience and that we need to learn to be open to it. And and I think that is the key for us as we continue to open up into the world is we need to start catching our biases. I do a lot of that work here in the United States around race and culture and how that looks in our classrooms and schools because we've created very uninclusive um, and not safe spaces for students that don't. Um, aren't a part of the cultural majority here in the United States or not even the cultural majority. It's the the culture of power in the United States, which is white. Um, So it's really important that we start to get aware of what those, what, when is that being triggered? How's it showing up and how's it limiting um, opportunities for our kids that we can start to make a different shift? Um, And I think for your organization, they're incredibly lucky to have someone like you on board, especially as you're talking about these like bridging East and West, because you have both within you. Um, And I think it's, they're just incredibly fortunate to have you leading the work that you're going to be doing in New York and beyond. So I'm excited for that for you and for your family and for all of us. Um, What are some ways that folks can learn about Uh, your organization, or if they have a kid like mine or someone else's who want to maybe explore learning in a different country, how, how might they go about that? um, Especially related to your organization?
2: Sure. Well, definitely for me, because Chinese social media and Western social media are essentially completely separated. Mm -hmm. I think the best, the best way to to get in touch is LinkedIn for me, which is just Brantley Turner, Mm -hmm. easy to find Shanghai Chibao Dwight High School and Dwight schools. And Dwight Schools is just Dwight.edu. It's got all the information about all of our schools on one page, certainly for families that are looking for for different international experiences around the world. And I would just leave a sort of final thought on that. And I think it's very important and connected to the work that you're doing in the US. The internationalization of education cannot be just the westernization of education. And when we talk IB, we talk AP, we talk Cambridge A-level curriculum, we are looking at a very Western anchored thing. And I do not want to tell anybody what they should believe about China. I'm ready to listen and, and ask questions about what people understand. And I think that that's the starting point. We need to be doing that in the US at the domestic level with our education. We also need internationally to make sure that we're looking at decolonization and we're looking at how there's Western agendas for education so I don't want to push that narrative either, right? That these, uh, non-Western schools should just adopt Western curriculum. So Great. we as Westerners have a lot to learn from Asia and from other parts of the world. And certainly I think Dwight as an organization values creating the space for those conversations and is not, uh, it's a, not a large institution and it won't be, a a 50 schools organization. We're seven schools. We we don't have plans to grow extensively, and really, it's a it's a been a fantastic place for me to just pursue things that I'm passionate about and interested in. And we call it at Dwight igniting the spark of genius in every child. And certainly, as I said, no one would have made me ahead of school. They made me ahead of school. They ignited something for me, and I really do hope to have some some great conversations about the east and west. It's been on the east side. I'm looking forward to getting back to the west side to do that. And I'm sure I'll be very interested in what I find out.
1: Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you. I I think that's a perfect note to end on um, is that there's so much to learn on both sides. There's nothing but benefits that can come if we learn to work together more. Uh, I'm super excited about your next steps and about the school that you created. Um, Dwight is W I G H T, like the name. Okay, great. Correct. So Dwight yes. Education. Uh, if people want to learn more about uh, your organization, the work that they do, and for sure, um, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you and so illuminating to hear what your world has been like over the last couple of years as compared to here. Um super excited for you to come on home and um, experience in New York for a year anyway. That's pretty good. Uh, so thank you again, uh, Brantley, for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure.
2: No, thank you so much, Megan. I really appreciate spending this hour with you this morning.
0: <laughs> Class is dismissed. Wasn't that fun? Susan and Megan are always happy to greet you on the next episode of The Awakening Educator. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Education is the foundation for a brighter future. Open your eyes to the awakening educator.